You ever read a passage of scripture and each time you come back to it, you get a little something else out of it? You ever had those kind of scriptures? Something you come back to? And there's sometimes there's art that does that. There's music that does that. They kind of have a lasting impression. It keeps you coming back for, a, for another listen, another look. We might say it stands the test of time. And in these great moments of life, it's as if the author has revealed something of their in, through their art that is something far more personal than you would just get in a glance, something that makes the experience more real. And so it is by the incarnation, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read last week in the beginning, John chapter 1, all of creation sets the stage like a great masterpiece for God's message of salvation. But when we come to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something more. There's something more intimate, more real, more lasting, something unique about God, something personal, and it captures our attention like nothing else, and it keeps us coming back. Maybe it's just year after year, but we come back time after time to remember something more about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as John writes, Jesus shines his light in such a way that we might personally understand something we've never before heard or seen or understood. He wants us to understand that all we ever hoped for in the beauty of creation, when you look around and you say all of life and you say, there's so much to be enjoyed, there's so much, why is the world in such turmoil? And you, you think to yourself, there must be something better to understand that all the beauty of creation is not only found in a creator that's hidden behind a curtain of stars, but it's there in the manger. The Lord Jesus Christ, the birth of God Almighty in flesh. A closer look. Whatever you prefer, your medium for Christmas, whether it's uh, movies, music, scripture, whatever it is, or the kids singing or going out caroling, you know, whatever brings you that joy of Christmas time, it's made personal by the coming of Jesus. In creation, we clearly have the undeniable message of a creator. But at Christmas, God did not just send a messenger to get his point across. He didn't say to <coughs> the angel Gabriel. He didn't say, hey, Gabriel, go down there and tell the people that I love them. He didn't just send a messenger. He didn't even just send us a note, a letter. He sent us a person. He sent us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As angelic as it all may seem, Without Jesus, this would just be another historic event, a blip in time. The veil is pulled back, the final touches are added, the crescendo is written, the moment of truth has arrived, the true identity of the infinite creator, God, is revealed through his son. This is Emmanuel, this is God with us, it's the thing that makes it all very personal. It's the same message every other gospel makes in its own way. Matthew, he presents Jesus as king. Matthew is sort of written to the Jewish people. Mark portrays Jesus as a suffering servant. Luke calls Jesus by his messianic title, the son of God, or excuse me, the son of man. And the gospel of John represents Jesus as the son of God. In Trinity... <clears throat> co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Mark ends where the, with the testimony of the Roman centurion. Remember when he looked upon Christ and he said, Surely this must be the Son of God. The Gospel of John 
begins with the testimony of another man, John the Baptist, who looked upon Jesus and said, truly this is the Son, the grace and truth that came by the way of Jesus Christ. More than all the others, the Gospel of John represents the humanity of Jesus. It connects it with the lives of people, confirming that God desires a relationship with you. That's the whole point of the Gospel of John, that God desires to have a relationship with you. And here is how you do it, through his Son, the Lord Jesus. John uses one word that sums it all up. It's there in verse 14. He uses it twice. He uses it again in verse 15. It's used like 20 times in his gospel. And you just look up the word and you can find it all throughout the Bible. The psalmist uses it. Solomon uses it. You see the word? It's the word what? You're not looking at your Bible? What is it? What is it? Verse 14. Glory. There it is. Used twice there. Thank you. Somebody got it. It's the word glory. And throughout scripture, the sacred mystery of God's glory, the word made flesh, the sovereign majesty of God's glory, begotten of the Father, the saving message of God's glory, grace and truth in the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard someone tell about a time when they met someone famous? Sometimes we talk about our 15 minutes of fame. Maybe there was something in your life and that, that moment that you met somebody famous, remember that? And forever, you tell that same story. And everybody around you is tired of hearing it now, right? It's that same story. Oh, that's right. He's got to tell. Every time you get together at Christmas, somebody tells about some story that they forever will remember. The majesty of God is on full display as he mingles with people. Jesus has come. Jesus has stepped out of eternity to dwell among us. Some people have a wonderful way of making us feel special. You know, like when you talk to them, there can be a crowd around, but when they talk to you, it's as if you are the only person in the room, and what they have to say is for you. You ever have people like that in your life that's that personal, like they give you that much attention? I remember a professor in college, it was like we were in this, in this crowd of classroom, but you know, he's just he just had that way that I thought his... His lesson that day was for me. You ever have somebody like that? That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. God's full attention is focused on you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses came the closest to seeing the full glory of God. You read about it in Exodus 33, Exodus 34. Remember he came down off the mountain. He still had a glow about him. Remember that whole thing? Like he'd just been tanned on the beach. That was, that was the, the event. And echoing that, John declares the mercy and grace shown to Moses is now seen in the grace and the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these opening verses of John's gospel are now given over to explaining why did Christ come and for whom did he come? Why did Christ come and for whom did he come? Christ came, first of all, for those who long for certainty. In a world of uncertainty and confusion, Christ came. Now our global connectivity, it's not hard for us to imagine that there are places in the world. We're still pretty much at peace in, you know, in our sort of little surrounding, our area, but it's not hard for us to imagine the sort of chaos that's in the world today, right? We see it pretty quickly. We know it's out there. We hope it never comes to us, but we kind of we get a feeling for that. 
But what can be trusted in a world of chaos, in a world of lies, in a, in a world of people you can't really trust, what can be trusted? The fact is, it's the same essential conflict that's always been a problem for mankind. The only difference is that we can see it on a scale that was never before seen. The Roman world embraced the conflicting claims of their gods and their desire for truth and to know what was real, to know what could be trusted. Perhaps it is for this reason that John repeats his claim. Remember in the first section we looked at last week, John claims that what he has to say is true and it's trustworthy, and he now says the same thing, it's true and it's trustworthy, and on top of that, he's got a witness, right? John the Baptist. There's someone here that's giving witness to it. The testimony of John the Baptist is recorded in the present tense. It's as if to say, not only is it a witness for our time, it is a witness for your time. It is something that gives witness to the Lord Jesus Christ for every generation to come. It's stunning, though. When John says... When John the Baptist says that there is one who is greater who will come after me. Usually you think of the, the more important person coming first, right? And then he gives this curious phrase. He says, and the one who comes after me was actually before me, right? Yeah. So this Lord Jesus, this eternal God in the flesh is going to come after me. I'm preparing the way I'm telling you about it. But then also, he is the one who was before me. We saw that in the first part, right? From the beginning. In the beginning was the word. So this again establishes Jesus as the one who stands alone. Jesus is far more than the greatest among many great people. He's far more than a great person for us to look toward. Jesus stands alone. Alone, not just out from the crowd, he's different. There is no comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is certainty to be found in the name of Jesus, whose reputation precedes him. His birth makes it undeniable, and this truth has been confirmed by many witnesses. Well, Christ came to provide certainty in a world full of doubt. Secondly, Christ came for those who long to be filled you saw it there in verse 15, or 16, excuse me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Grace for grace. Do you ever, do you ever stumble over phrases in Scripture? You know, what does that mean? I mean? What is that grace? You might say, well, that's not the way I would say it. And sometimes we oversimplify it. Grace for grace. It's like saying one blessing after another. Abundant grace. Marvelous grace, matchless grace, God's grace, grace, you know the song, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace that is greater than all our sin, grace for grace. The deepest need of all those who have ever trusted in Christ has been abundantly met in relationship to the Lord Jesus. The way in which Jesus identifies with man, again, goes all the way back to the beginning when he broke the pattern of creation. Remember the pattern of creation we looked at when we went through the book of Genesis not too awful long ago. Remember going through the book of Genesis and everything was spoken into existence until he gets to man. Do you remember what happened? When he got to man, what was different about that? 
He formed man, right? There's, there's a sense that he got down from the dust of the ground and he shaped man. And then it says, and he breathed into man the breath of life. There can be no denial that God has more interest in you. Forgive me for all the animal lovers. I love animals too. But he has more interest in you than your pet. He has more interest in you than any other part of creation. God has focused his attention on you, and we know that through the Lord Jesus Christ. God is way more intimately involved in man's existence than with any other part of creation. Man was made in the image of God, yet sin has marred the image. It hinders the purpose for which God originally created us and leaves us with a feeling of being unfulfilled, like something better, right? Like we're made for something better than what we see in the world and all the struggles and all the fighting and all the frustration and fear. By taking on the flesh in which we were created, Jesus is able to break the curse of sin Restore the purpose for which we were made. And what is that? To worship God. Sin has emptied us of all dignity. And man has stooped to the lowest levels of sin. And man has settled for the superficial, spiritual sort of attitude that if I just do enough good, then maybe, just maybe, and my friend, if that's the best chance you've got, if that's the best hope you have for heaven, you've got no, you've got no hope. Without the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus restores our relationship with God. Now if you go back in its original context. Grace upon grace. It takes all the grace that you've witnessed for 4,000 years. We call it the Old Testament. It takes all the grace that you've witnessed over the history of 4,000 years throughout the Old Testament. God dealing with Israel. And now it says... It pours out an even far more fulfilling grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything the Old Testament points toward, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills. That's grace for grace, upon grace. The emptiness you feel and the fulfillness that you desire can only be found in fellowship with the one true supreme demonstration of God's grace, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, as I often say, do you know my Jesus? He provides clarity. He provides fulfillment. Number three, he provides freedom for those who long to be free from what you see around you. Continuing with that Old Testament backdrop, verse 17, for the law was given by Moses. But that never saved anybody. Being good enough never qualified you for heaven. But grace and truth came by who? The Lord Jesus, right? So the truth of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the grace of God sending his son. In fact, when you read the testimony of the Old Testament believers, and you can go to places like, that you may just know it in your mind, just you, oh, I remember those stories. But if you went to a place in scripture, a summary, you'd go to Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews chapter 11, that great faith chapter, when you go there and you read about the testimonies of the Old Testament saints, and you would go down through there and you read about being delivered from a lion's den, and you'd, you'd hear about fortified cities and impending 
judgment and armies and all these overcoming circumstances of which they could only say, this is what God has done for me now. But to understand that when you get to the end of that passage, the end of Revelation chapter 11, it says that what they had given witness to, so they say, I, because of all that I've given witness to, I know that this is true. We now say, because of the witness we've seen through the Lord Jesus Christ in Christmas, right? The birth of Christ. Now we look back on it and we say, because of that, I can trust what this book says. As great as the Old Testament stories are of God's dealing with his people, they are external illustrations, imposed laws, and rituals of the internal personal relationship that we now enjoy through the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we've read before this only brings us to the conclusion that I need something, and that something is the Lord Jesus. For all the stories, remember names like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, remember all those stories that you ever heard about? And for all the kings that you think, well, that was pretty impressive. David, Solomon. And how about the prophets that told us about Christ's coming? Isaiah, Jeremiah. Imagine being a monk. So for all those stories, for all those wonderful things that you can remember, imagine, though, being among the tens of thousands in Judah that did not have that. They heard the stories. They were told by the prophets Laws were imposed upon them, but they had nothing personal. There was nothing that they could personally take away once a year or every once in a while or through the rituals. But for the tens of thousands in Judah, they had no personal relationship with God. That's why when you turn to Galatians chapter 3, it's a curious word used there. Galatians chapter 3, it says, before faith came, we were kept under the law. So there was a law to keep us constricted and all those you know, things that you think about in a sort of negative way and so to keep us under this law. Shut up unto faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was, and here's this curious word, the law was our schoolmaster. So we had a teacher. We had an instructor. We had something that showed us that we're missing out on. So we've got this teacher, this instructor, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified not by the law, not by works, but by faith. But after that faith has come, that's the Lord Jesus, we're no longer under the schoolmaster, for you are all children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is all about taking the history of the, the book that we call the Bible, Taking it all now and focusing it down onto saying, this is for you. This is what it's all about. And this now is why we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But of course, with this newfound personal freedom comes personal responsibility. Sometimes we talk about freedom like, I'm no longer under law, so I can just do whatever I please. No, you're already missing the point. Now, that's not at all. What you're free from is the penalty of sin. You're free from the sin that would hold you back from doing the thing that is the most fulfilling, and that is to worship God and serve God and love God 
and have a relationship with this creator that is so far beyond our understanding. But I come to get it a little more through, I, through looking at Jesus. For anyone who has ever made a New Year's resolution, you ever do that? You say, I'm going to clean up my life, right? I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to straighten up, whatever that phrase you use. But you know the consistent, limiting fear of failure, right? You say, I'm going to do it. You say, I'm going to, this is the year, right? And then it haunts you. And by that haunting, it almost, it, it almost ensures that you're going to fail. Only a relationship with Jesus, by the grace of God, can set you free, right? You'll know the truth. And the truth will do what? Set you free. So then you might ask, and I hope you're thinking at least, but you might ask, then how can I know God? Verse 18. Because no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, Jesus, which is in the heart of the Father, Jesus has declared him. Your translation may say Jesus has made him known. It may say Jesus has revealed God to us. And after all, isn't that the essence of every world religion? Any religion you've ever heard about, thought about, or even looked into yourself, every religion of the world is an effort to know God. But every religion of the world originated in the heart of man. Because man knows, man instinctively knows there's something missing, something wrong. I need God, and they do something, some religion to find their way to God. But you're destined to failure. Because the, the religion, if you will, the relationship that I talk about today did not originate with man. The relationship that I'm talking about today originated where? Verse 18. In the heart of God. It's not so much that you desire a relationship with God. Think about this. The point is that God desires a relationship with you. And he says, here's how we can do it. And he presents his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've never seen God. We have no clue how to get to God. I'm not sure we would know God if we saw him, other than what Joe was saying this morning. If he was very present here, I, I know I would shut up. I don't think we'd have much to say. It would be blinding, and it would be the total undoing of us. But even if we had a glimpse of God, our knowledge without Jesus would only ever convince us of our inability to understand God, to approach God, this awe-inspiring God, Job said in Job 11, we can never find him by searching. Furthermore, he said, and we can never approach him by our perfection, our righteousness. We could never get there. So there's a limitation because of sin. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man, that's us, right, just in our natural state, the natural man could never understand the things of the Spirit. He said they're foolishness unto him. 1 Corinthians 2. 
Neither can he know them because, that is they, because they, the things of God, are understood only by the Spirit of God. You want to know God? You want to know with certainty how you can have this thing we call heaven? How we can have a hope that is eternal beyond life? We even talk about a resurrection, a new body, a new earth. How can we with any certainty have any of that in your natural state, in your natural mind, in your best wishes? You'll never come to an understanding apart from Jesus. Jesus is uniquely qualified to make known God among those whom he dwells. The absolute theological character of God could never be fully understood by mere mortal man. But it is made a little more understandable in relationship to Jesus Christ. I could talk about all the, you know, we call them omni-attributes, right? He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. All these things that are like, I, I kind of get it, but yet I don't get it. But when I look at the baby, right, when I look at Jesus, when I think about Christmas, when I think about what God has done, if God revealed his full glory to man, it'd be like getting blasted with a fire hose, right? You say, I, I need some refreshing. I need something. Well, if you got blasted with a fire hose, that's not very refreshing, right? I mean, that's not very, it's not going to help you very much. It's just going to destroy you. But the Lord Jesus Christ is a fresh drink, right? The fountain of life. It's the thing that I can understand. It's in, a, it's in a shape, it's in a size, it's in a form that I can embrace. I can get that. I know God is so much more, but I understand a little bit more now because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember this, our faith does not hang on a better explanation. Our faith hangs on the illustration that's provided through the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the intertestamental period, we call that, that's that time of silence, you know, the Old Testament, New Testament, there's sort of this break in between. Remember Daniel, when we went through the book of Daniel, and he was leading up to this, this time of silence before the Lord Jesus, the advent, as we call it. And so in this intertestamental period that we just came through in the book of Daniel, if it convinces us of anything, it convinces us that apart from the advent, apart from the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, man would just drift further and further and further into silence and darkness and misunderstandings apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way of God making himself known without having to diminish himself, without having to sort of dumb it down in a way that, you know, you and I can understand. God does not diminish himself in any way when he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to say, I love you. Here's my son. Here's a glimpse of what you mean to me, God. And so we keep coming back, especially at Christmas time. We understand a little bit more each time we hear the message of Jesus. But my friend, if you ever hope to come to a knowledge of this truth, it will only ever come by way of the Lord Jesus Christ.